Walking the Dog is sponsored by Pet Plan, who pay 97% of all the claims they receive. Pet insurance can be a confusing business, but I think ultimately it's all about the quality of the vet fee cover provided. Pet Plan cover things other insurers don't and can pay your vet directly, so you get to spend your cash on other essentials. No, Raymond, that doesn't include dog biscuits. Terms, conditions and excesses apply. Pet Plan is a trading name of Allianz Insurance PLC. But he said to me, Frank, what would you rather be, funny or happy? And I said, well, funny, obviously. <laughs> this week on Walking the Dog, Raymond and I took a North London stroll with someone who's very close to my heart, not just because I do a show on Absolute Radio with him, but because he's hands down one of the funniest, most brilliant people I've ever known. It's the legendary Frank Skinner. Frank hasn't had a dog since childhood, but during lockdown, he and his partner Kath and son Buzz got an adorable cavapoo called Poppy. And I think it's fair to say Frank has officially entered his dog era. He's Poppy obsessed. And I've actually noticed a lot of dog-like qualities in Frank. He's fiercely loyal, endlessly entertaining, and genuinely once danced with joy watching sausages being cooked. I really hope you enjoy my chat with Frank and I also urge you to go and see his show 30 Years of Dirt at London's Gilgood Theatre from February the 5th to the 17th because it's honestly a thing of genius. I loved it. So go get tickets at frankskinnerlive.com. You can also hear Frank on his brilliant Frank Skinner Poetry podcast and on our Saturday morning radio show on Absolute. Okay, enough of me. Let's hand over to the wonderful man himself. Here's Frank and Poppy and Raymond. Have you got poo bags? Of course. Okay, I've got Ray. You're going to lock up? Well done. Yeah, I'm not sure if Kat's in, but um, I'll lock up anyway. Come on, follow Frank and Poppy. Poppy. Oh, we're going to pass David Baddiel's house. We are. Poppy, she might not do it today because we've already been out this morning, but she generally poos outside David's. Right, Poppy, I'm letting you Are you off. taking Poppy off the lead? Oh, God, the joy of having a dog is letting it off the lead. OK, let's let you off as well. So, Frank, I am so thrilled to have you on this podcast. Frank Skinner, MBE, who is with his beautiful dog, Poppy. Can you formally introduce us to Poppy? Yes, Poppy is um, a cavapoo, which... Um, is, despite the price tag, what in the old days we would have called a mongrel, in that she's half Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, which is painful to me as I would have liked to think I would have been a roundhead during the English Civil War, and um, part poodle. I mean, I think she's really beautiful. She's got sort of darkness around her eyes, a bit like Robert Smith from The Cure, that makes them sparkle more. I haven't done that, it came, came with the dog. She's a full-on Disney dog, isn't she's, she? She's uh, really lovely, I think, to look at. And her relationship with Ray, how would you describe it? Because they've had previous. I think from a distance, Ray can look like a shadow. <laughs> um, Ray's small and dark and compact. And I always think of uh, him as very much keeping himself to himself. Yes, I think that's. I it. don't. I don't know if one can truly know him. Uh, you yeah. might. He's unknowable. Yeah. 
Whereas Poppy is a bit more, uh, here I am. And you got Poppy, was it a sort of lockdown thing? Yes, we bought a lockdown dog um, in direct defiance of government instructions. <laughs> what happened was um, our family unit was me and my partner, Kath, and our child, Boz, who was nine at the time. And Buzz wanted a dog, and I was quite keen, because I'd grown up with dogs. Um, I was actually raised by dogs <laughs> in um, Moorland in the West Midlands, and never actually saw a human until I was at least 12. But um, Kath was absolutely dead against getting a dog, absolutely not. And then she phoned me uh, one day, when I say phoned me, we were in the same house. So Kath phoned me up and said that our neighbour had bought a Cavapoo. It was one of three sisters and another woman who we knew, who lived a couple of streets away, had bought the second of the sisters. Did I think that we should buy the third sister? Mm. And I said, I know what you mean, but you absolutely <laughs> categorically do not want a dog. And you've said that many times. And she said, no, I like the sisters thing, though. And I said, no, I'm not following this. If you don't want a dog, the fact that it's two sisters live nearby, what does that change? And at that point, Kat's sister was moving into our road, or about to. Yeah. And she said, I think it's a nice thing that like, my sister's moved in, and then we get a dog with sisters who live locally. It was utter <laughs> nonsense. It sort of looked like logic from if you squinted a bit, but it, it had no logic. So I said, why don't you leave it 24 hours? You know, because you're anti-dog. And when you've calmed a little with the sisters thing, you probably won't want it. And she said, we'll, we'll lose it if we don't get it now. We've got to put down a thousand pounds this is for a mongrel, remember, half cavalier King Charles, half poodle. We've got to put down a thousand pounds as a deposit. <laughs> I'm trying to remember, it's about three grand, this dog. Three grand for it? A lockdown, they all went up, apparently, because everyone was thinking it'd be good to have a dog because we never go out. And then they eventually remembered, oh yeah, we do when there isn't a pandemic. Anyway, we got the dog, we went and collected it from Ipswich. It was the last one to go. So she was in a cage with her mom, with her mom looking a bit, oh God, <laughs> nearly there. <laughs> and, uh, and so we took her away. Oh, it's a pug, lovely. Yeah, thank you. Oh, that's embarrassing. Yeah. Got the dog breed wrong, Frank. It's all right. Down I'll just say again, that was a chihuahua. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so? So we got it. We, we drove her back. I'd never had a female dog before. And I think for the first time, I truly understood the whole controversy about pronouns in the 21st century. Because really? when someone, I'm out walking with her and someone says, he's a nice dog, I go, it's a she. Uh, it really annoys me. And it matters, it matters to me that people know. Because when, when you were growing up, you had dogs. 
Yes. But not dogs in this sense, I don't feel. like I don't sense that you had much of an emotional relationship with them, or is that well, unfair? I, I think we had an emotional relationship. What we had was very little sense of owner responsibility. <laughs> so we had, I can think of three different dogs we had in my youth, in my childhood. We didn't have a lead, we never had a dog lead because they were never taken for walks. They were released into the night and would come back the next morning looking like they'd lived. And then uh, we never, I never remember buying a tin of dog food. What did they eat? They, they ate what we ate. So this or was... rather they ate what we didn't eat. Well, the first one was a dog called Tiny. That's the one I remember first of all. That was our Kate's dog originally. And that was looks a bit like a sheep dog, but I had several, several mixes. And then we got a whippy called Cal. And uh, there was an idea that we'd have two dogs at the same time, but Ti Tiny never recovered from us getting a second dog and pined away. Oh yes, I think you told me once she was ill with jealousy. Yes, I think that was true. It was a bit like Girls of the Playboy Mansion, that you want to be the dog, you know what I mean? I of don't course. mean that they're obviously. And then we got Shep, who was a Staffordshire Bull Terrier, more or less. Yeah. Generally, we just let them out, and um, the butcher complained to me that our dog was uh, sitting outside the shop barking for bones most days. But that's a dog that you would see like 10 dogs together. You know, you see dog walkers now. Yeah. You'd see that, but without the dog walker, <laughs> they'd form packs. And they didn't have an appropriate adult present. No, well, we used, uh, I'm sounding breathless here because we are actually ascending. As yes, we, we are. We used um, a method popular in uh, the 80s and 90s for football managers yeah. of zonal marking <laughs> and zonal marking is you don't you're not given a man to mark <laughs> you're given an area of the pitch and whoever goes into it that's your responsibility <laughs> and if you saw a dog doing something I don't know having sex or attacking someone then it would be your responsibility. You'd look after that dog. And someone else would be looking after your dog wherever that was. Did your parents, so they didn't have a sense of the dogs being family members in this, really? I don't know that we had that much sense of the family members being family members. <laughs> I, uh, I think they would love the dogs. It's just that they weren't um, fossed over in those days in that part of the world. Your brother, because you had our Keith, our Terry and our Nora. Yeah. And our Terry, he had quite a few animals, didn't he? Yes, well, he... Um, and bear in mind, these were different times. But uh, he used to do things, he used to go bird nesting, which is when you take eggs out of birds' nests mm. and blow them. You put an hole in each end and blow the insides out. And he had a lovely display box made out of an old train set carton. And he 
was really a city boy who wanted to be a country boy. So he, various pets we had in the house included an owl, a jackdaw <laughs> and a rat, all of which he'd caught in the wild and then brought back to the house. The, the so the owl the was owl. on top of the wardrobe. The, the owl was on top of the wardrobe? Yeah. In oh. a cage, I would say, that was snug for an owl. Did you sleep in the bedroom with the owl in there? Yes, and we'd get other owls would sit on the trees out. So we, we don't want to say out in the, we weren't in the country, we were in the black country. But there were trees in our road and they would sit in those trees and they would call to our owl and it would call back from the bedroom. It's, it's a, there's a flaw in the, in the whole arrangement in that you don't want anything nocturnal in your bedroom because they are clearly going to be a disturbance. But we also, the jackdaw, my brother used to bathe it on the hearth side in the, in the washing up bowl. And there'd be water, I mean, on the ceiling and the walls. They're incredibly uh, very flustered birds, the jackdaws. But he assured me that he, it would learn to speak eventually, but um, it left before that. Is there a part of you, when you think about, I suppose the way we indulge our dogs and the way dogs are treated now, mm. is there a part of you that thinks of, like your dad, thinking, what the hell are you doing spending that kind of money? Or Well, my dad, because he actually was from the countryside in, in, in County Durham, he had that countryside attitude to animals, mm. which let's call it unsentimental. <laughs> 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 rather than use the C word, <laughs> cruel. Um, he was on sentiment. He did hair coursing and things like that. And he used to poach. Oh, he would knit nets uh, from balls of string <laughs> in a rumpelstiltskin um, manner and then cover rabbit holes that, he'd, that had spot, they'd been spotted. Had, we'd have to go outside the town for this. And then he'd bring back rabbits to sell. <laughs> Yeah. He had a no-nonsense attitude to animals, yeah. so he wouldn't have... I mean, we never, ever went to a vet for any of those dogs. What if the animal was ill? Well, you know, if you're going to make an omelette. But vets seemed like something that middle-class people would do. Mm. I don't know, in case your um, listeners are not aware of Hampstead, it's quite a sort of hoity, toity area. It's... And I um, was on the heath with the dog and with my partner and there was people feeding the ducks on the pond. And of course it was hamster, they weren't giving them bread because they'd read on the RSPB website that that was bad for ducks. Um, they were giving them uh, some sort of dried fruit. So Poppy raced over uh, she was very little then and um, started chomping out of this bag and the guy said oh wow your your dog loves raisins and um, that was at the mention of raisins Poppy starts barking Poppy so yeah he said your dog loves raisins and Kath went oh my god and I said what is it and it turns out raisins are dog kryptonite if dogs eat raisins, they're dead. So we went to the vet 
and said, we think the dog's just set a load of raisins. And she was in scrubs and stuff. Um, and said, uh, oh my God, uh, okay, we're gonna sort it out. Don't worry, just sit down. And took the dog in the back room. And um, I always know when they, when they take the dog in the back room at the vet, oh. what, what they're gonna come out with is a bill as well as a dog. Anyway, they went and they gave the dog stuff to make it sick mm. and that. And then she came out, we were anxious, I'll be honest, and the vet emerged from the back room after about half an hour and said, um, I think one of the most hamstered things that was ever said, she said, great news, it's goji berries. <laughs> and um, yeah, the people had said raisins as a sort of a catch-all phrase, but they were in fact giving the the dog's goji berries, which the vet assured us was actually very good for dogs, now that we'd flushed them out and she'd been through this um, enforced vomiting. But hey, um, look at this big old thing. Yeah, there's a, a big... Um, What's that, Frank? Poppy's a little uneasy with the very large dogs. That looks like a man. And not just a man, it looks like one of those sort of... It's a bit salt and pepper, I still got it, Italian man. Yes, I can. In yeah. his fifties, I can see that. Do you? I don't want any dog that, if it goes mad, I won't be able to physically <laughs> handle. No, I feel like that. I don't want to feel. I think you'd be all right with Ray. I think with Ray, you could probably um, take the edge off its wild rage with one of those plastic tennis rackets they used to <laughs> electrify flights. <laughs> Poppy's, I, I would say she's quite a... Uh, Do you want to walk more, Poppy? Is quite a like nervy her? dog. But I think nerviness often comes with warm-heartedness and kindness. So, you know. I think she's got a very kind soul. It makes me feel good that I've got a sort of part poodle thing. Because obviously a lot of men do feel that they need to have a dog that represents their inner maleness because of my ultra confidence i don't fall into that trap <laughs> well you're an interesting combination because i would say you've got main character energy as the youth would say right but i wouldn't describe you as an alpha male no i would say i'm testosterone intolerant <laughs> sometimes men come up to me in the street often like middle-aged men and start talking about stuff like this woke rubbish. And I find it really horrible. And I just, what I want to do is a sort of Will Smith slap. Because I don't, I don't want to buy into their world by clenching my fist. Take my wife's be, name out, I you've got to humili I want to humiliate them as well as physically hurt them. <laughs> I want it to be the kind of attack that Scarlett O'Hara might have used in Gone with the Wind. But no, I don't, I don't like it, I don't... Um, Do you think that's something people get wrong about you sometimes, who, who don't know you well? Probably, yeah. I think uh, I probably brought it on myself with talking about football and uh, ladies over the years, that people uh, think I'm, uh, you know, a bit of an oik. I think I've got some oik in me. Mm. But... Um, it's set in impenetrable Janet. quartz. <laughs> Janet wants to say something, I don't know what. Let's hear what Janet, Janet says. Wait. Are we going too quickly? 
What was Janet going to say? That's what on your um, <laughs> podcast I would call <laughs> Hampstead Atmos. It sounded very like a sort of, and now on Radio 4, today's play, Janet wants to say something. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I think it could be a regular programme <laughs> in which Janet, whoever she is, talks about the world that week. And there'll be more from Janet wants to say something next Tuesday on Radio 4. <laughs> and the uh, award goes to Janet wants to say something. Thank you, and I think this is a great idea. Yeah. Do you find that interaction with people? Do you like that? Do you know what I mean? When people come up and say, oh, hi, Frank. Oh, I like all that, yeah. Do that, you? That's about, um, that's about the level of intimacy I'm comfortable <laughs> with. <laughs> so it's selfie level of intimacy. Um, I would say. No, I've always liked that. And when people um, moan about it, I mean, celebs, I always think, ah, oh, shut your face. I always, I don't believe it. I don't believe that people find it annoying. I think I'd better not admit that this makes me feel proud and successful. Do you think it's, it's disingenuous most of the time? Yeah, I do. Mm. Because... Um, yeah, it does make me feel proud and successful. <laughs> Pride is a sin, of course. And even when you get bad stuff in the newspapers, you know, I always thought this is how famous I am, that I'm actually in here getting this. And uh, I say, and obviously it sounds sort of terrible, but it only sounds terrible because so many people lie about it. <laughs> and talk about how humble they are and that they don't need all that kind of stuff in their lives. Well, I always remember you saying that you were staying in a hotel. You didn't understand why celebrities would eat breakfast in their room. No, I know. There was a period when I first got famous, I wouldn't holiday abroad because <laughs> uh, I just couldn't cope with not being recognised. Um, <laughs> obviously, that's slightly exaggerated, but I, not without truth. A guy, I can't name, but a comedian said to me, we had to film something in town, a photo shoot in town. And I said, let's get the tube. And he said, I can't get the tube, I'll be mobbed. And I remember thinking, well, I am much more famous than you. And I get the tube all the time. I think, I honestly, grow up. But I'm interested in how you deal with encounters with people I suppose which happen with dog walks mainly because I'm slightly obsessed with your how your dad was quite wary with strangers mm. he had a, an interesting way of dealing with them well my dad um, used to have salt in his jacket <laughs> pocket um, just in the pocket you know salt cellar and uh, he always used to say, if ever someone's coming up and you realise things are going wrong, you just put your hand in your pocket and then don't make a big violent gesture, just very casually throw salt straight into their eyes. Uh, I've never done it. And I'm not, I don't know if he ever did, but he did have the salt in the, the pocket. But he came from a much um, harder 
time. You know, he grew up in the Depression in the Northeast and all that. And I think there were people stopping people to steal the lunch they were taking to work. So it was, it was a bit more um, dog eat dog, or at least dog eat pasty. But he also used to say, when people asked you for the time, he'd say that that's how they get you. Well, he came in one night with his hand badly swollen, and he said that a man had asked him the time, and he'd knocked him over a garden wall. Recognising that it was a ruse and a sort of preamble to a, a mugging. Um, I think this bloke was like about 55, perfectly <laughs> respectable chap in the street. You know, not, not an obvious hoodlum. But um, like I say, if you've grown up through that and the war and mm. all that, I guess it makes you different. I always think it's interesting that you're... You speak very warmly and you're very accepting of your parents in a way that I suppose a lot of people tend not to these days. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It's kind of, well, I inherited this and I had this issue and, you know, and I, hands up, I'm one of those. Well, my mother was an epitome of kindness and selflessness. I mean, that is, when people talk about... Uh, love without any sort of um, conditions. Mm. That was what you got. Honestly, if I'd have shot seven people in a McDonald's, my mum would still have been bringing me cake at the prison. I'm sure of that. And my dad was a, you know, he could be a, a difficult and even violent man. But he had a tremendous passion for music, for having a laugh, for football, for the Roman Catholic Church, all of which have been central strands to my life. I felt tremendous love from them. And love always feels better when it's set in poverty, I think. <laughs> it just gives it that little sparkle amidst the gloom. <laughs> what qualities do you think you've got from your mum? And what have you got from your dad? Well, I can't say that I've inherited um, selflessness and kindness, really. I think I'm capable of kindness, but it's more of a display than an instinctive thing. I think I... I remember I read Tom Jones when I was at... Um, not the singer, <laughs> the novel by Henry Fielding, 18th what, has century. Has Tom Jones novel. written the book? If He's got to have, he's, he had to have gone for It's Not Unusual. What would he have gone for? I think it'd been great if he'd have called it <laughs> It's Unusual, <laughs> because his life has been unusual. Actually, it is very or, unusual. Or if it turns, as it turns out, it is unusual if he'd called it that. Uh, to Tom Jones is a bit of a rascal, the character in the book. But um, he's, he aspires to being a good-natured man. That's the phrase that Fielding uses over and over. And that's what I aspire to being, to being a good-natured man. I think I sometimes, in the work context, I sometimes find myself, and have found myself in the past, certainly, as the person who cares the most in the room. And that's always a difficult place to be, I think. Mm. It can be exasperating. But um, 
I've mellowed. Sometimes, though, it's interesting, though. I think those working relationships, and I would say this because we've worked together for 15 years now, but you know it's like in relationships and you think this, this person's... Is, these are the bits I like on Radio 4 oh, when you can, hear, you can hear the uh, gravel under our feet. What are they called again, Frank, those people paid to do that? There's a job title. Yeah, the, the Foley. Foley. Foley people. Yeah, and they, uh, they do things. like For this, they wouldn't actually use gravel. I think for walking through snow, yeah. for example, they use uh, <laughs> cornmeal. Oh, do they? And uh, I think a, a, a pestle. I, I realise now, I don't know which is the pestle and which is the mortar. I'm the pestle. Pest is the pestle the, the rod? I like that you've gone for pestle. The bulbous rod. Is it, isn't it pestle? Don't, can you not say the bulbous rod? I think I can say that. I really prefer it. I if was you just didn't. pointing out, Rod, you were coming <laughs> over the brink of the hill. <laughs> he likes to be called the bulbous as his, um, as his standing adjective. <laughs> See, I would have gone for pestle. Oh, maybe it is pestle. I'm frightened because it's so adjacent to pizzle. <laughs> oh, and you're, you're perfectly comfortable with the bulbous rod. <laughs> anyway, um, that's how they do walking through snow. Because walking through snow apparently doesn't sound like walking through snow. And they use marbles in glasses instead of ice because ice doesn't sound like ice. Oh, yes. The foliar operators. Oh, I, do you know what I've noticed? I love Pop Pop Poppy loves to chase a ball. She's got a ball here, which is about a third of a ball, remaining ball. It's the most tragic thing. Go on, off you go. She'll still chase it. Go on. Go on, love. Oh, it's, it's hard to kick half a ball. I like it. It proves we've got an actual dog. I like her bark. Yeah, <laughs> go so far. Yeah, I like. Bear in uh, mind, this is a treat for me, Frank, because Ray, as you know, is uh, has never uttered a sound. Well, when go people on. stand outside our front window, the dog goes. <laughs> so you know the pre-bark, <laughs> the pre-bark warm-up. What's this? There's a. Yeah, there's a, there is a tree trunk which people have drawn really quite nice faces It's on. beautiful though, isn't a it? Bit, I wouldn't even call them graffiti, they're, they're actually uh, quite subtle and... Uh, it's very uh, goji berries area. Yes, it is. It's probably done in the juice half. <laughs> goji berries so as not to damage the trunk. <laughs> but I think that's interesting. I was going to say, when you work with people, I wonder sometimes, is it more a case of finding the right people to work with you know it's like with relationships when you say oh i feel too much this way or i feel too much this way and then you think well maybe there's someone out there who won't make you feel those things so well i'd say i'd stay i've stayed friends with all the good people really i think i once did uh, tfi friday and um, Chris Evans was known as a bit of a tyrant in those days. And it was the last minute rehearsal before he went live on air to, I don't know how many it was, three million viewers. And he was just trying out this little sketch they were doing. And he reached out and he said, hold on, where's the soda siphon? And somebody said, uh, 
oh, sorry, I'll, I'll get it. And he said, I, it needs, we're on air in four minutes. It needs to be here. And everybody started like looking at me, rolling their eyes and stuff. And I thought, has no one noticed that he's right? That this person had a job of doing it. This bloke's about to be live on air for whatever it was, two or three hours. He's trying this out because he wants to get it right. And somebody couldn't be bothered to make sure the soda siphon's in the right place. Mm. And I thought that's a fair summary, often, of when you hear about monstrous mm. celebrities. That you should always try and unpick the person who's telling you about it. And then he said yeah. to me, I always want to say, yeah, but what did you do? What level of incompetence did you subject him to, to drive him to this? <laughs> I think there are monsters, and I think I was a difficult man to work with when I was in my glory days, at times. But I think, um, I think people who basically... I used to give this speech, which everyone hated me for, in which I'd say, I've got friends back in the West Midlands who were bright, articulate, sharp, industrious, conscientious people. And they work in factories now and on the bins. And if they'd have been in the right place to the right kind of family, they'd be doing this job, a job that everyone wants. And I don't resent the fact that you got lucky and got that opportunity, but recognise it as a privilege. Take it seriously and give it a hundred percent. And that always went badly. <laughs> did it? Of course it did. I did feel like that at times. I certainly, having put in 15 years, mm. I've always felt valued and appreciated and I guess respected. So you can't have a working relationship for that length of time without, you know, I've snapped at you, you might have got irritated with me over the years. Not that frequently, to be honest. No. But at no point, you know, that feeling you get when you think I'm not appreciated here or I'm not, I've never, ever felt that. No, but that is the case. And the case of that is I, you're very good. I know I can count on you. I know if there's a fire in the studio and I decide that we should carry on, <laughs> you'll carry on. Albeit in breathing equipment. <laughs> but that's We should say this is the radio show that we do on Absolute. Hello, yes. doggy. Frank's going to show, unsurprisingly. And it's our 15th year this year. And I, I think I've realised something, which I don't think I've ever told you this, but... Because when I started out, I had very little broadcast experience. I wasn't very good. And I was female in what was essentially quite a male-dominated field. It still is. Mm. And I, I think what terrified me was how much space you gave me. Well, when I um, knew you before that, we were always in very tough company. And we were often in the company of largely male celebrities who were great raconteurs, very funny, loud, abrasive. But I think it was harder for a woman to cope in that because you didn't always, when you started your anecdote, 
sometimes they continued on to their next one. Yeah. And I think I thought, God, if this woman who is still hilarious and fascinating in this company was actually given a bit of space and a proper chance to be, I think <laughs> she'd be amazing. And I think I've been proved right in that. What a lovely thing to say. Not well, I, I know there's probably people throwing up as they listen to this, <laughs> but it's true. I would say that was a feminist act, but I don't think I don't know if you feel entirely comfortable with being the label of feminist for you. Like I say, I was I was doing it very much because I thought it would be uh, beneficial for the show. I wasn't doing it as uh, an act of um, philanthropy to um, give this poll girl a chance. It wasn't that. I just, you know, sensed that you had a, a specialness about you. Well, I think you were, you were early to the party when you've worked with women, you know, that you've just viewed them as performers rather than, you know, if you find someone funny, they're funny. It's not... Well, I'll tell you something about that. I... When I was doing uh, panel shows, let's say Room 101, which I did for like seven series, and then Danny Cohen, who was the boss of the BBC, said, uh, right, you have to have a woman on a panel show. You can't, you can't do it. From now on, that's the rule. And I thought, well, I've always followed that rule. I wish you hadn't made it a rule <laughs> now. But also, there was one episode of Room 101 when we had three white men on it. And it was because someone pulled out the last minute and that's how it went. And it was a good show and that, but it feels different. And for all this talk about, oh, you know, diversity, so you meet these white guys who say, you know, we can't get work anymore and all that. It feels better, a show just feels better if you've got that sort of representation it feels like a nicer place to be and a sort of a a richer atmosphere yeah. so yeah i think rules are, you know are good but it's nice if you can get to those places without them walking the dog is sponsored by pet plan as some of you may know i'm fussy when it comes to my dog which is why I never went back to that groomer who gave him a mullet. But I'm fussiest of all when it comes to his health, and that's why I've always insured him with Pet Plan. I've always found them so easy to deal with, and they cover things other insurers don't, which is probably why they're the UK's number one pet insurer. You're number one as well, Raymond. Calm down. Terms, conditions and excesses apply. Pet Plan is a trading name of Allianz Insurance PLC. You know, as we're on the heath and in a very poetic setting, you can feel where I'm going. Mm. We're at one with nature. I feel this is very appropriate. This is my kind of nature. Environment. I like my nature, but you know, there's a Sainsbury's local, no more than five minutes <laughs> And there's away. a nice clean bit of tarmac to walk on. Yes. I want to discuss your fabulous poetry podcast, which has been so phenomenally successful. I feel really proud of you because... I think it was quite a risky move when you decided to do that. 
Well, I thought it would be so obscure that even if it failed, no one, it wouldn't be rather that it was criticised, it would be more that no one had noticed it had happened. And so um, I sort of thought it would slide by and maybe twice a year um, someone on a train would say, oh, I listen to your poetry podcast. But um, yeah, suddenly it was getting like five star reviews in the Times and stuff like that. I think why I loved it when I first heard it was I realised that I'd never heard poetry, or if I'm honest, even literature, discussed in that sort of conversational, chatty, crucially normal way. People tend to do a phone voice whenever they're talking about those subjects. Yes. And I think with popular culture, people are very comfortable talking about films in a chatty way or succession or whatever, or music. Well, I remember I said to um, Bauer, who financed the podcast, the company that also own Absolute Radio, I said, look, I'm passionate about football and I'm passionate about poetry and I don't see why they should be discussed in different ways. And that was it, really. You've got to be careful of, you know, that, you know, that voice when people read poetry. And they're going to, oh, no. think, no, all right, gay or good. <laughs> Calm down. I should say we're on top of Parliament Hill, which is a, something of a landmark. Poppy's met parts. a friend, Frank. Poppy's met a, a whippy. But, yeah, I feel like there was one, I think it was Shelley... I remember you opened it and you started saying, well, I remember the first time I heard Shelley and it was Mick Jagger. Yeah. And I thought, oh, OK, I'm in now. Yes, Do you know well, what I mean? I... If you'd have started with the look, Shelley was born, and I would have thought, no, I don't, I'm out. But I think that's an important point because it's all about not seeing poetry as in a sealed container somewhere, of seeing it all over the place and part of the world and part of life. I was a kid watching the Rolling Stones um, live at Hyde Park on the telly and Mick Jagger holds a book in his hands very dramatically and says, he is not dead, he doth not sleep, he hath awakened from the dream of life. Even then, I think, I, it, unless I've elaborated, I thought, Oh, God, that's an interesting idea. So you're not going into this sort of terrible void. You're coming out, life is that, and then you're going somewhere special. But he was reading Shelley, and it's what Shelley had written about Keats, who'd just died. And Keats had died at 25, and Brian Jones, the Rolling Stones guitarist, had just died at age 27. So it was all popular yeah. culture and poetry all mixed up together. Where's Pop? Oh, Poppy Poppy's, wants to go that way. Poppy's doing the... No, she wants to go that way because my sister-in-law lives down there and she's got a back oh. gate onto the heath. Poppy. But we're not doing it. She'll give in. So, uh, it was actually exactly how poetry should be used, I think, is that, that Mick wanted to say how they felt because they'd sacked Brian Jones. A lot of people think that Brian Jones was a rolling stone when he died, but they'd sacked him um, shortly before because of, um, you know, erratic behaviour and some habits that they felt didn't 
suit the professionalism of the, uh, of the thing. Do you think having Poppy has been, makes you feel, I always think dogs feel like the full stop on a family. I do think of Poppy, not exactly as a family member, which would be a bit freaky, but I see her as a sort of a completion mm. of our family. Because there's just me, Kath and Boz. And we went on holiday not long after we had Poppy. And we got out the car, we spilled out of the car. And I don't think three people can spill, but four just makes it enough. And um, I also think that if you've got any trouble at home, having someone in the homestead who is basically coldly indifferent <laughs> is a great place to hide, if you know what I mean, a great place to go to. If you think Poppy's indifferent, imagine what Terry's owl was like. <laughs> you I don't, don't think get much from an owl, do Ter you? Terry's owl was, um, there was always a sense of brooding wisdom. You'd get nothing, <laughs> nothing back from that owl. Did the owl have a name, by the way? No. <laughs> um, I think Terry would have regarded that as a frippery, to name them. I know what you mean about dogs. Someone... I can't remember where it was, but someone said that dogs are for children, essentially, because they're the gods of frolic. And I like that idea because I always think it's quite a good test if people have a, a sense of the absurd. Yes. I mean, I can't say that I feel about my dog the way I feel about my child. That would not be correct. I was, we walked the Thames path, the four of us recently, and Poppy likes to swim. So she got in the river and this couple came up and said, excuse me, but they're tipping quite a lot of um, raw sewage into this area. And I think it's quite bad for a dog. We don't let our dog go in here anymore. And I said, well, she loves to swim though. And they said, yes, but, you know, I'm sure you wouldn't want anything terrible to happen. And I said, well, we can always get another one. And I only said that just to put in perspective, you know, but it is, um, it is true. But I know what you mean, because someone said to me when I got Ray, who, as you know, was sort of, let's be honest, a, an element of him being a slight grief and bereavement plaster, mm. and, which I think is no bad thing. No, I agree. It's like when I said to my therapist, do you think Ray's a child substitute? And he went, yeah, probably, but that's all right, isn't it? Yeah. And it was like, oh, yeah, OK. It, and you know like... what it says on the Animals at War monument? <laughs> they had no choice. <laughs> Ray was brought in, brought in as a grief counsellor. All he wanted to do was to chase a ball. He had no choice, Ray. No choice. <laughs> I remember the first time I, I saw that monument. I should have my book. He had no choice. Animals go, to, animals go to war. And to choose as a caption, they had no choice. The first time I saw it from the boss, I thought, well, then why do we celebrate their courage? <laughs> they were impelled. But I, you know, I, I remember I used to say when we first got Poppy, I used to say to you, I don't feel the love yet. Yeah, I remember you said to me, when does the love happen, Em? Yeah. And I thought, all right, Black Eyed Peas. And then yeah. you said, 
now when will I feel the love? And I said, well, it's a reciprocal relationship. When you give it, you'll get it. I sensed there was a moment when you, you got it. Well, I don't remember. I didn't have a sort of uh, road to Damascus experience. Oh, there was but no I remember Damascene. slowly becoming aware of the glow. And um, Why do you think that was? Do you think it was partly to do with the joy that she brings Buzz as well, your son? For a start off, when we got Poppy, I was interviewed shortly afterwards by a Times journalist. And he said, I hear you've got a dog. And I said, yeah. And he said, now, I've just interviewed a dog psychologist. And he said that when a dog enters uh, a home, it latches onto the person that it perceives to have all the power and sticks with them. And Poppy has absolutely done that with Kath, <laughs> which is, I, I absolutely agree with her um, assessment. Her assessment of how the, the family works. And she honestly would do anything for Kath. Kath was out next door talking to the neighbour yesterday and Poppy was running up and down the wall between our houses, not barking but going <laughs> So I think the dog version of uh, Billy Fury's Halfway to Paradise that says so near yet so far away. She just wanted to be with Kath. She could hear Kath, but she couldn't, she couldn't have the contact. And in the end, where Boz had to lift her over the wall. Look, come on, Ray. Look at his little black beauty, Ron. Yeah? Come on, Ray. We're going to stop, get, grab a tea to take with us. I, Frank, what would you like? Oh, just tea would be great for me. Just, um, I'll have a tea as well. Shall we sit down here? Yeah, I'll grab Ray. Hang on. Do you think David Baddiel would get a dog, Frank? No, he's very uh, feline. He's one of the cat centric. people, isn't he? Very... I'm actually, uh, in later life, I've become allergic to cats. And so is Kath and so is Buzz, so it's, it's an absolute no-no for us. When um, we did this podcast before, a few years hmm. back, you said something to me, and I couldn't really give you an answer. You s said to me, what do you think is my worst flaw? Or right. what would you describe as a fault of mine? And I kind of almost vomited when you asked me that because that's a, a level of honesty that I feel slightly uncomfortable with. Yeah, I can see that. I've been thinking about that question on a very regular basis ever since that moment. Right. And you may well view this as a cop-out, but something occurred to me, which is that when you're friendly with a comic, I think you have to accept that their character bugs, if you like, are sort of so much part of their features, they're part of their design. So in a way, their flaws form the bedrock of their comedy. Mm. So if I took away the things that maybe I found challenging about you, yes, I wouldn't have the funny stuff. Here's an example. Your refusal to sort of abide by the social contract, which I find excruciating sometimes, but it also, things you've done make me laugh on a weekly basis when I remember them. I just think of emails you've sent, 
where everyone else is dancing around a subject. You know, every quarter we get the figures. And obviously they go, sometimes they're stable. Generally, I was very good, may I say. But they might say, no real news, but everything's stable. And we're still continuing to grow. Everything's fine across the board. And we'll all reply, thank you, great. Thanks for letting us know. You will say, well, I for one won't sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by, hold my hand, someone. Well, so, I mean, I think it's important not to use that as an excuse for being abrasive. I'm um, friends with an American comic called Dennis Leary. And uh, I don't know if I told you this on the last podcast, but he went from being just a comic, a very brilliant comic, to being a film star. And he moved from New York to LA some of the time to film. And he said to me, he phoned me up and he said, I said, what's it like, what's Hollywood like? He said, everyone I'm working with has got an analyst. He said, I, I, I didn't know anyone in New York who had one. And I said, oh, that's, uh, I suppose that's to be expected. Are you gonna get one? He said, but don't you see, you and I, there's something wrong with our wiring mm. and that makes us comedians. And if we let someone in to put that wiring right, we won't be funny anymore. And he said, some of these people, they are quite tortured people and they've gone and it's, you know, it's made them better. But he said to me, Frank, what would you rather be, funny <laughs> or happy? And I said, well, funny, obviously. <laughs> And I guess that summed it up. But then you are someone who, Kath describes you as having a lot of sort of high, naturally high serotonin levels. Mm. Do you think that's true? Your default setting is sort of mostly happy. I think I'm probably 80% cork. So I remain buoyant through some, you know, dark times, the usual dark times, parents, dying and all those things mm. you know about yeah of course but i've never despaired have you not no and uh that is a blessing i mean she bases my high serotonin levels on um you know that oven doors have a window <laughs> often and when uh she first came around my flat or one of the first times she came into the room and I was doing a little dance in front of the oven, watching sausages cooking. <laughs> the sheer joy of anticipation. And that was when she said, I think you might have high serotonin levels. But um, um, you always like that, even let's say, cause you know, now you haven't had money worries for a while. You know, a lot of those, what is it they call the basic pyramid of needs, are met, or you've met yourself, I should add. So when you were, let's say, broke, not sure what you wanted to do with your life, yeah. were you as happy? Would you still be doing the sausage dance then? I think I was, or well, certainly not far off. You know, I once got interviewed by um, Michael Parkinson, and it, the idea was that I'd go on 
I knew what was coming. They were going to ask me about my battle with the bottle. But um, the camera, I knew, oh, the, I could it. feel the asphyxiation of the camera tightening. You know, the camera used to go in for the close-up to see if there was any tears. Or was it all a bit of Piers And Morgan? he said, what was like, you know, so drink was a terrible thing in your life. I said, no, drink was a brilliant thing in my life. I said, if it had been a terrible thing, I wouldn't have got so ensnared in it. But in fact, it was a series of glorious, carefree adventures, which sober, I don't quite have the personality to pull off. I said, but it was brilliant. I wish I could continue with it, but it was making me ill. Some people are lucky enough to be able to drink forever. <laughs> and I said, uh, no, really, it was, it, you know, I've never experienced that same white heat of happiness that I did when I was drinking. And he was saying, but, it, you know, it made you very ill, didn't it? And I said, uh, eventually, but for most of it. And he, he was starting to get exasperated. And um, it culminated in, uh, they had an Olympic rower on the show with me. I said to him... Oh, Frank? What's this dog called? Wilson. Wilson. Oh, Wilson's a nice name. Is your dog in season? No, he doesn't have seasons. Yeah. He's permanently autumn, winter. <laughs> nice to meet you, Wilson. So I turned to Matthew Pince at the Olympic Rower. You know, they, used to, they have three people on at the same time in, in the later Parkinson. I said, did you find that when you were very focused, and, and Parkinson said, are you talking to him or doing the interview? <laughs> I said, well, why is he there if I can't talk to him? He said, are you doing the interview? I said, well, why not just get me on there? He's got to sit there. So it, all, it didn't go that well with Parkinson. But that is, that sort of just nailed very neatly an example of the bug and the feature with you. But it is a fair point. You know, and I think in the 70s, Parky was, um, he was a bit of a man about town, quite <laughs> fashion, you know, fancy car and all that. And Roy, I was talking to Roy Slow Talker Walker, who yeah. used to host Catchphrase mm. in the early days. And he said to me, he was at the BBC once with Eric Morecambe. He said, and like he said, he was saying, you know, Parky was really, really fancied himself and was very cool. He said, I walk, we, we got out of our Rolls Royces and we walked towards, we walked towards the lift and the doors opened and, and Parkinson was there, he said, in a full length black leather overcoat and a, a black leather, a large black leather cap. And he said, the doors opened to reveal him and Eric Morecambe said, hello, Parky, have you come as a wallet? <laughs> And uh, I think he needed a little bit of uh, bubble bursting. <laughs> Frank, um, I'm contractually obliged to mm. mention, but I would mention this anyway, that your show, 30 Years of Dirt, you've just done a sold out at the Edinburgh Festival. I went to see it and it's so brilliant. Do you know what I loved when I came to see that show at The Moth, which was this very trendy club, too trendy for the likes of us, one would have thought, Frank. Mm. I hope that's not unfair, but you know, it's no, the No, I think I, I, as I said, I'm taking the coolness <laughs> down at this club. A bit like when people 
accidentally put warm food in the fridge. No, but what I liked was I found myself sitting there feeling... It's quite difficult watching you because I'm also scrutinising the face of every audience member. So am I, dear. I know, but I feel like one of... I'm more like the... You're the skater. I'm the Russian ice skating coach. Oh, yeah. Staring down at the judges. And what I loved and what really heartened me, and I suppose I just felt quite proud of you, was seeing how how the young people were kind of responding to you, like all these young people, and I thought, oh, you're getting it, you're discovering him. And I really loved that, and I thought, that's interesting, that I'm not sure every comic would be able to transcend that generational divide, but I think you do. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there's a theory um, that older comics are unappealing to younger. I mean, that's why you don't get many old comics on the telly. You don't get anyone my age, really, hardly ever on the telly doing comedy. We're doing documentaries, you know what I mean? So um, I think there is a feeling that it's, it's probably something to do with the, the human face when you get to my age. You know, people at home thinking, I'm eating. Um, they don't really want that on the telly. You know, I, I mock myself for doing some vintage references, but, um, but I, I like to think there's enough accessibility for, uh, for all, as it were. But I, never, I can only see from where I stand in the spotlight. I can only usually see the first three or four rows and that is often where the older people head because so they can you know see and hear me <laughs> but when for example you do edinburgh now compared with when you first went oh, over 30 years ago wasn't it now yeah you that level of nerves and anticipation you must have felt going on stage for the first time thinking well this is all my money and it's going on this gig and if this doesn't work out i'm a bit screwed Presumably, as there's less riding on it now, do you, does that does that change how you feel backstage? Does it increase or decrease the nerves, or do you do you feel much more in a relaxed headspace? Well, the on, the honest answer to that, though it might sound um, a little airy fairy, is the priority is so much what the show is, how I perform it, and how the audience respond that I ne all those things seem very secondary. I don't need to do Edinburgh anymore. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I probably wouldn't be completely confident that I could give a thorough answer to why I did it, especially for a month. People were saying to me, but you know, you're supposed to come in for three nights at the Playhouse and then go home. That's what comics at that level do. But I wanted to be there and I wanted to do the show over and over and over in front of those audiences. And I also think the thing with me is that people, when they get older, often they say, oh, I like doing the shows, but oh God, can't cope with motorway travel, motorway services, hotels. But I love all that part of it. I think that the love of the shows will probably go first. <laughs> for me and I'll have to just do motoring and holidays but I you know I love getting at a motorway services at 3am with a support act and a tour manager and having three Krispy Kremes 
But you know what that is? It's dancing with the sausages. I think it probably is. I think we're going to have to... <laughs> I think I see a play coming. Another Radio 4 drama. Dancing with dancing the sausages. Dancing with the sausages. That um, would be the... You know the American version <laughs> of Strictly, Dancing with the... That will be the German version. <laughs> Dancing mit the sausages. Yes, mit bratwurst. Uh, I am. Um, no, do you know what I mean? I can see. Sometimes we'll get sent something. Someone will send us something into the radio show. Think of an example, Frank. The kind a, of a tonics tea cake. Tonics tea cake. Very good. We got that recently. And Frank will say, "Oh, we've got tonics. Oh, and I think you're a man of property. You've done all right for you. But it's. I think you have never lost that almost childish glee. It's like I. I can't believe I'm in this position. No, I think um, I am an enthusiast, certainly. And um, I do get very excited about things happening to me, which I you know, think I am blessed to be experiencing. That has never gone away. And I think, although I hated working in factories and that a lot of the time, I think having a rubbish job makes a good job, and in fact, a brilliant job, be even more brilliant in contrast. Is that difficult as a parent? Because you're thinking, well, I know this was the making of me and it's made me appreciate it, but I don't, I want my son to always be happy. Mm. So where does, how do you, how does that work? I think that must be quite tough as a parent. Yeah, I think always happy is um, only accessible to the simpleton. <laughs> My dad was worried that um, I'd have no money and nowhere to live. And I'm worried that Buzz will be a Nepo baby and won't really appreciate things. So parents always find stuff to worry about, no matter how completely different mm. they are. I mean, I think parenthood is about letting go. Yeah. From very soon on. At least Ray never leaves me, he's trapped. No. He, what, what is it they said on the memorial? <laughs> they, they had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although in fairness, no that could have been said of my childhood. They had no choice. <laughs> when we were carted round to Madame Jojo's at three in the morning. No, it's probably true of most of us, I suppose. In a quick summary, um, I was um, very much drifting around fairly purposelessly. My headmaster said that he feared I... I might become a tramp, which is the word of the time. He could imagine me becoming a tramp. And uh, I said, okay. <laughs> and then I said, you haven't got any 10 pence for a couple of, no, I didn't. So um, I was very aimless and drinking a lot and all that. And then I discovered comedy and everything, every light came on in the house, if you like. And I thought, this is so it. Mm. I found it. An experience which a lot of people don't have. And I would say for 25 years, everything in my life was second to that. And quite, quite a, a, a distant second. And I gave as much as I could to that. And, it, you know, it, it was good for me and I was very respectful of it and worked very hard at it, as hard as I could. And then when I reached the point where I thought that I'd met this woman who I loved so much that I would like 
some concrete manifestation of that loss, i.e. a person made of that loss, I thought, well, then I have to do a deal. Mm. And the deal would be that I am going to have to give a lot less to my career because you've only got so much to give. Mm. And I, so I made that deal. And um, I've never regretted it. So, I mean, one could argue that, you know, the career has suffered for it, but that seems a, a small price to pay for the joy it's brought. Mm. But of course, eventually, if I live on, there'll be a point where I'm saying, you never call me, etc., mm. etc. Et but um, this stage and the stage where you are together is so, for me at least, so brilliant and so fulfilling that I'm hoping that when he never calls me, I'll think, oh, now I can read that book I mm. wasn't able to read and I can learn old English and do stuff like that. <coughs> Sorry, <coughs> Poppy's seen a cat. <coughs> all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. All right, Poppy, all right. I'm glad she was on the lead for that bit. Can I just say, that was very unlike in West Bromwich. All right, all right, all right, all right. The way you dealt with that. I got a little, a little glimmer then of you breaking yeah. off a fight. Yeah, all right, all right, mate. <laughs> Come on, lads, nobody wants to get into trouble. Frank, David Padil's having some building work and I'm just saying they're sitting in his window <laughs> with the radio on. <laughs> what if he isn't having building work? <laughs> what, what if we find he's got squatters? You might just be the person to give this to. You look like somebody well known, but I could be wrong. Oh, okay, right. well. Don't worry. Um, so if you need a dog walk, I, I just promote business. I got two. Okay, mm -hmm. that's Is fair that enough. a schnauzer? No, he's a shih tzu. Okay, lovely. Mm. There's, there's a lady here, brilliant business. She does a lot of walking in this side. I am a dog walker, but I'm not promoting that for myself, but she does the GPS collar. Everything that you need, they will match with their service. So okay. if you need any help, do reach out. Cheers, okay. I hope you have a lovely day. Bob. Thank you, Thank you, you too. I thought that was, do you know those puppets you've got under your arm? I know. Uh, can I say hello? You say all the right things. Sorry? <laughs> you I'm, say I'm all the right things. not really. Really, wow. It, and it, did you say a Shih Tzu? Yeah, Shih Tzu. Is he cross or mixed? Um, he's an imperial Shih Tzu. Gosh, does that mean that he's a special breed? I'd like to think so. He's your baby, isn't he? He is, yeah, really. Yeah. He's oh, a child yeah. substitute. Yeah, I've got um, a <laughs> chihuahua at home that's like, you know, you could pull the legs off. And oh, just sit there. No, oh, don't do that. No, no, no I, I think that's <laughs> a daddy <laughs> long legs you're thinking of. Have a lovely day, <laughs> Nice See to ya. meet you. Bye-bye. Sorry, just admiring your dog. Oh, thank you. Nobody ever admires my <laughs> dog. <laughs> That's unusual. I've never seen a dog like that. Raymond, he's called. Lovely to meet you. Well, we're getting back to your house. I've really loved this walk. Good. And I, it really gives me a happy heart seeing you with Poppy. Because well, I feel you've got the love with her now. Well... I, although I live next to Hampstead Heath, which is one of the most beautiful places in London, I never used to go on it much because I think 
There's something about a grey-haired man walking about the heat on his own, which makes, makes me think <laughs> of something dark and uh, a little unsavoury might be going on. But when you've got a dog, it seems to legitimise. People are not threatened by uh, me walking along with a calf of poo. I never knew about this, but the, I see people on the heath, usually older people, admittedly, who, and I think a dog operates as an anti-loneliness advice uh, device. And I don't mean the dog solves the loneliness. I mean, they talk to every other dog owner they pass, and it becomes this mobile community, which everyone who's got a dog is like a ticket to that community. And that's a really nice thing. I mean, I personally listen to audio books as a way of avoiding it, but I like it for the others. Frank, will you say goodbye to Ray? I will. Ray, goodbye. It's been uh, emotional. <laughs> we love you, Frank. I love that Ray stopped with the centre party after all these years. <laughs> Still got the curtains like an 80s footballer. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed that episode of Walking the Dog. We'd love it if you subscribed and do join us next time on Walking the Dog wherever you get your podcasts.